Welcome to the St. Patrick Catholic Community Podcast in Scottsdale, Arizona. We are Christian Disciples in Mission. So the purpose of the genealogy is to introduce the listeners of the gospel to the profound truth about Jesus. And so you're in the middle of Matthew's genealogy and you're you're hopping your way through the begats. You know, the one begat the other who begat the other who begat the other. And in the midst of it all, it says, oh, and, uh, and Tamar, uh, Tamar, who, uh, uh, I can hardly read my own little thing, Judah, the father of Paris and Zerah, by Tamar. And you're going, that's odd, a woman in the middle of it. And then you get on to the more fathers of this and the father of that and the father of the other. And then you get to, and Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And you go, that's odd, there's another woman in there. And then, and then you go on a bit more and you say, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Bathsheba, the wife of Ahitra, actually Matthew doesn't even mention her name. He just says, the wife of Uriah. David, father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And then finally you get to, and Mary, of course, who was betrothed to Joseph. And this would be like, Having a woman in the midst of a genealogy would be like starting off happy birthday to you. And gosh, isn't the tree out there just fantastic? Brian was talking deep things about the <laughs> trees and roots and happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. And did you get the pizza I sent you last night? It's as interruptive as that would be in the midst of a of a happy, we know what, how happy birthday goes. We don't mess with the words. You get from beginning to end, and that's the formula, right? We have such formulas for the end of the year, old Lang Syne. We have all these formulas for little things that are part of our rituals and belonging. And the ritual that accompanies a genealogy is it goes from father who begat somebody, who was the father to somebody, who was the father to somebody, to father. The last thing you do is have these sidelines of little women in there. You know, so you say, what's with the women? And that's what I want to start us off on. The women matter. Some of you might have heard of her ladyship. Have you heard of Tamar? Tamar is kind of a cool one. Tamar shows up in Genesis. And Tamar, or Tamar, as we used to say when I lived in Ireland, and some of you will guess I'm not from Alabama, um, uh, that Tamar has a situation that's happening to her, and it's rather unfortunate. As you see, the husband that she was given by her father-in-law, Judah, Ur, he happened to go and die, having offended the Lord, which is the usual reason for people dying in the Old Testament. Uh, and, then, uh, and then she's supposed to have uh, the, the next brother, Onan, who is supposed to lie with her, impregnate her, so that her issue will be the issue of Ur, her first husband. That's called the leveret marriage. It's, a com it's not regarded as kind of, um, mm, you know, inter-family or incestuous or anything like that. It's simply that in order to make sure that the honor of the dead man and the heritage of the, of the dead man is continued, some, somebody produces issue for him in his name, legal issue for him, only seeded by, another, by a brother. Well, Onan decides, oh, I don't want to do that. It's a long story. Onan was going to miss out on some of the farm, basically, if he, if he gave her issue and that issue was hers, he was going to lose out on some of his inheritance. 
Uh, so Onan spills his seed, if you know what I mean. And, uh, and that offends God, so poor Onan's for the high jump. And then it, uh, yeah. that's a, a biblical term, I think. <laughs> and, uh, and so it goes that uh, she's expecting to, uh, to have the next uh, son, but um, he's basically saying, well, you're going to have to hang out until he, he grows up. Shelah is too young. He's only about 10. He needs to grow up. And then it turns out that Judah doesn't want to give her Shelah after all because he's thinking my sons don't last around this woman. Son number one dies, son number, no, number two dies, I don't want to lose son number three. And he puts it off and puts it off and he refuses to give her the honor that she deserves. What does, Ju what does uh, Tamar do? She goes out um, into the, uh, cut a long story short, fascinating, fascinating Genesis chapter 38 go home and read it. It's such a narrative. It's a great yarn. She hides herself the side of the road, covers herself with a veil so he can't recognize her, makes out like she's a prostitute. He's coming home feeling just fine, thank you very much, from the day of wine and good, good things that he's had. Sees her ladyship on the side of the road, does the supposedly honorable thing, gives her some tokens for her time, shall we say. And they have their little moment. And then he goes on home, tries, uh, actually tries later to uh, follow up with in, in more ways. Bottom line, he doesn't find her anymore, asks around, that's odd, she's vanished. Horror of horrors, his noble daughter-in-law is pregnant. He plans to have her killed because what else does one do with a dishonorable daughter-in-law? And boom, she says to him, by the way, these are the tokens of the one who's the one who lay with me, and he, he realizes that it was him. There's no shame in that. She's tricked him, but she's tricked him into performing the duty that he was supposed to do to do right by her and by his son in the first place. Does that make sense? So a savvy, savvy woman who overcomes the lack of initiative of this Israelite man who, in the midst of this, acknowledges her faith in Yahweh and acknowledges the need for Israel and ir Israel's heritage line, so to speak, to be part of God's salvific work, and uses her good old brain power to, uh, to be canny and savvy, so she tricks him, and therefore, in doing that, she assures the continuation of the line through Judah. In why is she mentioned in Matthew's Gospel? Because we will note that she is a heads up. She's Matthew's way of giving us a little heads up that says, those outsiders, okay, those, those folks who are, because she's a Canaanite, by the way, and the Canaanites are basically the people who occupied the land before the ancient Israelites came in and took over over the land. So they're outsiders, and that's an important piece of this. Um, Matthew's Gospel will show us that the outsiders matter. The people who don't belong matter. The people who are the Gentiles, for lack of a better word, matter, and in fact are included in the plan. And this Canaanite woman shows up in the genealogy as a kind of a spoiler alert, we might say, sneak preview to that which is coming. Does that make sense? She's a, it's a great story. Next one who comes along is Rahab. 
just gotta love me some Rahab. Rahab's a prostitute, okay? I put the uh, notations of her story up there from uh, the book of Joshua, chapter two, shows up again uh, in chapter six, verses 16 to 25. I checked with Adam and they will put the PDF of these slides up online so you'll be able to have access to them and download them, refer to them, and whatever the same place is that they're, that they're taping this, because I understand that they're taping this, this talk. So, uh, so you don't have to scribble like crazy or memorize, all right? So uh, Rahab is a prostitute, and, um, and what she basically does is she defies the law of the land that the king has established that says that basically anybody who is a spy for Joshua needs to be handed up to the authorities and put to death immediately. She defies that rule. She helps uh, Joshua's spies to escape. And, uh, and, uh, and in doing so, she's, you know, like when you go to Spain and you ask somebody, where's the cathedral? And you realize later that the cathedral was around the corner to the left. And the good Spaniard says something like, si, 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 por allá, five miles down that way and turn right. And with complete and total assurity, they will, this has happened to me multiple times, they will send you in the exactly wrong direction. Does that make sense? They, it happens all the time. People never admitting that they have no idea where uh, the place is and sending you in the opposite direction. And she does exactly that. She tells the people, yep, they got away. They went out down that way. Meanwhile, of course, the spies are hiding around the corner. And she lets them down the side of the wall. It's marvelous. But who is Rahab? She's a prostitute. She's a woman. And on top of that, she's a Canaanite. These Canaanites are becoming a theme, OK? These outsider women who have no stake in Israel, yet acclaim God's salvific power and God's plan for Israel. This is huge. If you're writing about the gospel of Jesus the Christ, and you want to make sure that the heritage of Jesus is exemplified, uh, includes women who long, long ago saw what was going to be uh, important for, uh, for uh, the kingdom of Israel. And so Rahab basically, marginalized woman though she, though she is, she facilitates God's purposes for Israel. And if you think about it, she is therefore both midwife and mother to Israel in its beginnings in Canaan, okay? Very, very important person, marvelous story. Ruth, you all know the story of Ruth and Naomi. Fascinating, really. A woman, Ruth, proclaims allegiance to her mother-in-law, two women proclaiming allegiance to each other who have nothing to offer. They are proclaiming a, a lifelong loyalty to each other, and yet both women have nothing to offer each other. The prevalent issue throughout all of the Book of Ruth is st imminent starvation and their desire to make sure that they don't uh, actually fall prey to the hunger that they have. So in the Book of Ruth, if you haven't read that one, it's short. This is not designed to be a, a history. The Book of Ruth is a historical novel, basically. Remember, the Bible is, is a collection. It's a library of books, some of which are poetic, some of which are history, some of which are fiction. And this one is a book of fiction, but it's a marvelous book of fiction um, that uh, picks up on um, on the fact that Boaz is recognized as an ancestor of, of Jesus. In this case, Matthew picks up on this. So 
Ruth is a foreigner. She's a Moabite. You know, do you know about the Moabites? You want to talk about outsiders. The Moabites were, um, let me say this, Lot's wife, pillar of salt. Lot loses his wife to being a pillar of salt. Just got to love these stories. Uh, Lot is left without a wife. Lot has two daughters. The two daughters say, whoops, we got a problem. We're going to have to continue the line. Continuing the line, you will notice, is a big deal in the ancient world. Um, remember, if you don't believe in life after death, as the ancient world did not, the ancient Israelites, your focus for life was the continuity of the community. The community must continue. This is how we stay alive. And we participate as one of the ancestors after we're dead, and that way we stay alive. But the community must continue to tell the stories of the ancestors, otherwise there is no life beyond the now. It's a uh, fascinating way of understanding Old Testament obsession with having children, okay? And, um, and uh, uh, what happens is um, uh, uh, Ruth, uh, sorry, the, the Moabites, um, after Lot's wife died, there, there was nobody to follow him, so his two daughters said, we're going to have to have some, find some way to continue the progeny. So in a fabulously scandalous story, both daughters plot to get dad drunk two nights in a row, and the first one, I know, the first one sleeps with him the first night, and the second one sleeps with him the second night, and his memory is mercifully blurred, it seems. And anyway, both women become uh, pregnant, and the oldest has, uh, has uh, Moab. And so Moab then becomes the, the founder, if you like, of the, the tribe known as the Moabites. So when you say Moabite to somebody in the ancient world, they say, oh, yeah, got it, it incest around there, you know, a <laughs> little, little bit off, you know. <laughs> so you have to understand, so people in Matthew's time listening to the, the, the showing up, the gospel genealogy showing up with Ruth in it, and they, you can imagine them saying, wasn't she a Moabite? Did you know about them? <laughs> you know how they are? Yeah. It's exactly the same thing that they would have said, Tamar, did you hear about her? Pretended to be a prostitute. Ha, got it. And some people say, oh, I think she was great. And other people say, you know, that's wrong. You know, same thing with Rahab. They have this, so you, you can just imagine the listeners to Matthew's gospel saying, oh my goodness, okay. So Ruth, Ruth was a Moabite, but what does Ruth do? R Ruth goes and, um, and has her way with Boaz while she suggests that he pull back his cloak over his, over his feet. You know in the ancient world, any time they say feet, everyone went <laughs> feet. You know how the boys sometimes will talk about, um, you know, I'd say basketballs, but you know, those balls, you know? <laughs> and you know how sometimes we know that they're not always talking about the things that you throw in the net? Okay? It's the same, and I'm trying not to be rude and scandalize anyone, <laughs> but you kind of get where I'm going, right? That's how it is with feet in the Old Testament. Feet, giggle, giggle, giggle. She has her way with him on the threshing floor. And he makes a very honest woman of her as well he should. Why? Because he already promised her his blessing as a senior family member. He wasn't, she wasn't quite sure he could be counted on, so she took the initiative. 
That's the short version of the Book of Ruth. Great story. Don't miss it. It's a book all of its own. Absolutely fantastic. And all of these just show up as a name in Matthew's genealogy. We haven't even gotten into the rest of the story yet. And I only have a little time, so I'm going to have to speed it up. Bathsheba is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Okay. Um, Bathsheba is often talked about as the object of Dave, King David's lust. I honestly find it more accurate to say she's the object of his violation. If you're the, the king and you see a woman walking around the garden next door and you call her over, she's not going to get to say, actually, I'm not in the mood. Or actually, no, I don't want to do that. So I like to call that violation and rape. But to be honest, enough commentators aren't still uh, making that point. Uh, but to my mind, Bathsheba overcomes uh, that which is the, the uh, indignity and, and violation that she has, uh, she has endured. And in the beginning of the story of Bathsheba, she's, uh, which um, is, um, uh, oh, and I think I forgot to put the, um, um, the biblical connections on there for you. I'll get those up on, on this. Um, in the beginning of, of uh, the story of Bathsheba, she's very passive. Her voice is almost not really heard um, uh, in the narrative, other than that it was David's actions that violated her. But as life goes on and Solomon grows up, she becomes this avid, strong woman. You want to imagine any passive, quiet, meek woman who suddenly, later in life, becomes this voice of advocacy? That's what happens with Bathsheba. She has this transformed maturity that just turns her into somebody who's, who actually uh, is, is the, the, the one who produces Solomon and who safeguards the, uh, the wisdom of Solomon for all the ages. So she's a major figure. And all of those Canaanite and Hittite and slightly risky women all did the same thing. They overcame a hesitancy uh, or a lack of initiative on the part of the guys. They acknowledged the priority of Israel. In each case, even though they were outsiders, they were not Jews, they were not Israelites, but they acknowledged the God of Israel. And they helped participate, therefore, in, in God's evolving plan. And they uh, did it with cleverness of action, cleverness of speech. And they responded to, uh, to threats and marginalization. Because one of the things I haven't had time to elaborate on is in each case, all of them lived, all of their actions occurred within the context of some threats and heavy-handedness and authorita authoritarian type behavior. And in each case, they responded with initiative and cleverness but never violence and never the same authoritarian heavy-handedness. So a beautiful model for us. And those women show up in Matthew's Gospel and presenting, da-da, who do we see fairly as we go through uh, Matthew's story. One of the other women I want to mention is the Canaanite woman. Take a moment just to read what's up here, just to remind you of the Canaanite woman. And you tell me if Matthew's gospel has not already set the stage for the setup with this woman. Do you remember this woman? 
She shows up in Mark's Gospel as well. In Mark's Gospel, she is the um, Syrophoenician woman. Here she's called the Canaanite woman. It fits Matthew's needs to identify her as Canaanite. Just got a lover. She comes, she's from that district. She comes, ca comes, calls out, and says, Have pity on me, Lord, son of David. Don't you love the, choose, the choice of titles? In case you were in any doubt about my participation as yet another woman who is kind of bringing together the line of David, I'll spell it out for you, son of David. Can you imagine the first century audience listening to Matthew's gospel going, nice one, nice one. See how she threw in son of David there? Every savvy woman knows when to call the name, right? Uh, have pity on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. Don't get me started on how that probably represents chronic, absence, uh, chronic shortage of food. Uh, Romans never allowed famine because famine always bred riots. They constantly allowed chronic endemic shortage of food, which in turn led to so many of the illnesses that you see befalling all of those who follow Jesus. But he didn't say a word in answer to her. Don't you love? This is called Jesus stuck. He's not usually so rude. Uh, send her away, for she keeps calling out after us, say the disciples. He said in reply, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is a key, key component in Matthew's gospel. Who, for whom is Jesus? Jesus is for his people. I still hear it on the radio and, and TV networks. Jesus is for those who proclaim Jesus. Sorry if you're the other side of the door when the Jesus connection was given out, but you're just for the high jump. Isn't it true? You hear it proclaimed, which is why don't hang out with the fundamentalists, folks. Just don't. Because they don't get it, honest to goodness. It is the only type of biblical interpretation that the Catholic Church condemns, actually condemns fundamentalist interpretation as bypassing historical knowledge, bypassing scientific inquiry, bypassing literary analysis, bypassing all of the interpretation by Catholic and other mainline Protestant churches throughout the ages. So the fundamentalists literally go behind the door and say, no, we're not dealing with that. So when you hear people really espousing a fundamentalist approach to scripture, please be terribly cautious. Enter them into your prayer life if you like, but please don't take notes. Okay? <laughs> I'm serious. It's just so important. And so, this, so here you have Jesus saying, but I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the woman, courageous that she is, one of these extraordinary cases where the, the healing power of Jesus initiates by the initiative of the woman. Of the woman. And she does him homage, always a good thing, and says, Lord, help me. And he says, uh, yeah, but it's not right to take the food of the children and throw it to the dogs. That is a major slam. It's not polite. He's calling her the dog. She's listening to the characterization of her that is anything but nice or kind. Um, and she owns it, 
and refuses to weaponize it. And she says, yeah, but even the dogs get the crumbs, you know. Imagine taking the insult that somebody slams you with, owning it, transforming it, and handing it back to them. If that isn't gospel. And it's the most beautiful example of this. And Matthew has set us up with Tamar and Rahab and, all, and the others. And, and I didn't even mention Mary. I wanted to tell you, I'm not deliberately ignoring Mary here. I'm a huge Mary fan, huge. However, it would take a workshop unto itself, as I hope you know. So my focus here was introducing you to some folks that might give a different key into Matthew's gospel that might encourage you to kind of t spend more time with it. And at a different time, then you can dwell in the outstanding element of, of, of Mary. I'm not even going to mention Mary of Magdala, you know, who, by the way, was never a prostitute. Let's all say that together. Mary of Magdala was never. Okay, juxtaposition of two stories that led to her being maligned much. And so the people, when they act her out, oftentimes they wear a red dress. And I want to say, stop it. Give her blue or pink or green or something, but not red. She was not a prostitute. That's the wrong story, uh, so just so you know. But she was a major, major figure in the uh, disciples who, uh, among the disciples who followed Jesus. But here, this marvelous woman, great initiative, all on her own, courageous in the face of the opposition of Jesus. This is the text that helps us to understand the Second Vatican Council's teaching on those who belong within God's salvific work. I say salvific, uh, meaning connecting to salvation. Typically, we think of salvation in terms of the invitation to eternal life, right? Okay, and so for now, we'll use it within that context. Lumen Gentium. You all know Lumen Gentium, do you not? That is the short Latin way of talking about the dogmatic constitution on the church from the Second Vatican Council, one of the major, if not the most significant document that emerged from the Second Vatican Council, 1962 to 1965. Over 2,000 bishops in unanimity and in conformity with the Holy Father. If you haven't memorized all of those 16 documents yet, it's time to start. <laughs> It'll take you, take you the rest of your life. In those, in that Lumen Gentium documents, if nothing else, go to article, I just Googled it uh, earlier today, article 14, 15, 16 of Lumen Gentium, boom, it pops right up, okay? Um, I'll spare you the entire read. 14 basically says, look, what? <gasps> no, don't tell me. <laughs> oh, thank God. Oof, goodness. Oh, okay. Oh, oh, okay. I don't know which is worse, losing Lumen Gentium or losing the Canaanite woman. In Lumen Gentium, they talk about who belongs as part of God's salvation, who, who's included, okay? Let me read you 16. Finally, those who have not yet received the gospel are related in various ways to the people of God. The people of God are those all invited to, to the table, the banquet, heavenly banquet. In the first place, we must recall the people to whom the testament and the promises were given and from whom Christ was born according to the flesh. That's code for the Jews. On account of their fathers, these people remain most dear to God, etc., etc., etc. 
In the first place amongst these are the Muslims who are professing to hold the faith of Abraham along with us um, and who along with us adore God. I lost my spot, but they definitely adore God. Adore the one and merciful God who on the last day will judge mankind. Nor is God di far distant from those who in shadows and images, that's code for um, Buddhists and uh, all of those um, Baha'i and all of the others. Shadows and images, seek the unknown God, for it is God who gives to all people life and breath and all things, <laughs> and wills as savior that all men be saved. Those also can attain to salvation who through no fault of their own do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, yet sincerely seek God and moved by a grace, strive by their deeds to do his will as it is known to them through the dictates of conscience. Did you all know that not only Catholics, but Catholics and Protestants, not only Catholics and Protestants, but Jews and Muslims and Baha'is and all of those who know no God at all and all of those who sincerely strive to follow the dictates of their heart, all of those folks are invited and welcomed by God into his salvific work, mm -hmm. into his life ever after. We do not profess that you have to swear allegiance to Jesus in order to be entered into the kingdom of heaven. Catholics bind ourselves to Jesus and declare it so. Those who are not are welcome too. And that's one of my issues I have with some of the stuff that we hear out and around. Uh, those folk, they don't, I heard somebody say, uh, those Jewish folks, you know, that's okay, but um, she doesn't have the Holy Spirit in her. Of course she does. It's our faith that says she does. That all comes from what Matthew started with this Canaanite woman story. It's not the only place, but it's a great example. Does that help? All right. Moving forward, we should ask ourselves then, when and where can the unusual, even the risky, unorthodox actions of a woman be seen to bring about profound change under circumstances of marginalizations, marginalization or inequality? We might say, Sister Helen Prigent, we might say Rosa Parks. We might say Malala, I'm going to massacre her last name, Yusufitz, <laughs> the, the Pakistani girl who was uh, targeted and uh, attempted, um, she got the Nobel Peace Prize for her work uh, in support of education of, of girls in Pakistan. This matters to us folks. This matters because it's what we're called to. We're called to take the examples from our Old Testament women that Matthew extols. And it, we're, talked, we're called to take the example of the Canaanite woman and bring this daring despite the fact that it's risky and despite the fact that we might be marginalized for it. And this is an odd world today. You know full well we're going to be marginalized at the drop of a hat the minute we speak out. But this is the time for courage. We don't usually hear of her in heroic terms, but let's face it, Pilate's wife deserves a mention. Why? Here's the text on the left-hand side of your screen above. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that innocent man, for today I have suffered a great deal because of a dream about him. 
Matthew's vision of those who belong within the plan of God includes those who, like Pilate's wife, are outside the Christian community. Another example. She's not part of the, the, the followers of Jesus. Quite the opposite. She's married to a guy who ends up being the one who condemns him to death. And yet, Matthew wants, it ha makes a lot of cases for the fact that God communicates God's divine will through the use of dreams. There's lots of that in Matthew's Gospel. There's always a concern for righteousness. Righteousness, tzedakah, mishpat, those words are words for justice. Justice and righteousness. That which calls us to the right behavior. And she is called to the right behavior. And Matthew's Gospel insists, in fact we call this oftentimes the manual for right, right discipleship. Because he structured his Gospel actually in, um, in five major segments that a lot of scholars will tell you seem to align symbolically with the five books of the Torah. Okay, that it's like for Jewish people they would understand the five segments of teaching in Matthew's Gospel as similar to the five, the five books of the Torah. Um, um, and uh, another message that Matthew has persistently throughout his Gospel is that if you enter into this perfection, uh, this discipleship that is righteous and right, it's going to involve some suffering. It's going to involve you being targeted, and don't we know it? In this day and age, this is the age of the poster child of being targeted for opinions that don't seem to be uh, part of the status quo. And her message is ignored and not even acknowledged. That's the tragedy of Pilate's wife. She goes down in history as having sent the message, but she goes down in history as having had that message having had no effect. There's no indication that he commented on it, that he took it into account, or anything. And so we ask ourselves, when and where can the message a woman offers in pursuit of justice? Matthew's Gospel is as relevant today as it was for the people in the first century. The woman mixing flour with leaven. We usually say yeast but I'm into leaven these days. <laughs> I'm a bread breaker, bread baker, or bed breaker maybe. <laughs> bread baker. Let's go the right way with that one. <laughs> and I have my own, uh, st my own yeast, my own uh, starter, um, uh, sourdough starter. This is the parable that he uses about the woman who mixes flour with leaven. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. What do we know about leaven? It has negative connotations in biblical narratives. All of the references, or many of the references, are up there for you. Yeast is usually regarded as a negative thing. Why? Because it operates by causing decay, and it's hidden. It's often associated with Jesus' opponents, even in Matthew. But in this marvelous parable, the negative symbol is transformed into something of tremendous value. The message for us, something small and suspect, can indeed produce the great and valuable. To take home, where can the small and suspect produce the great and valuable?
Our time together has just been a taste of Matthew, just a taste. There are a few other slides that you'll see on here, just relating to women followers of Jesus in general. The woman with the 12-year hemorrhage, also known as the woman with the flow of blood, fascinating little story, um, asking us where is courage needed now. And then the last one is just my information there, my contact information. I hope, if nothing else, that my purpose today has been, uh, has been achieved, which is to give you a taste of Matthew's Gospel and to give you an eye for noticing when there's a woman in the story, and in particular, what per aspect, what characteristic that woman brings to the story that we can take today and own and continue being part of that league of their own, per continue being the particular presence that we hope to bring to the world. I wish I had more time for lots of engagement and questions and answers, but 45 minutes goes fast. So I'm glad I learned a long time ago to talk fast. <laughs> Thank you so much for your attention, for being here. I hope it's been helpful. Thank you for listening to the St. Patrick Catholic Community Homily Podcast. We are Christian Disciples in Mission, 